You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Thursday, New City. I'm going to ask the fathers uh, who are here today to please stay seated. I always felt awkward when they make me stand up, so we'll do something different. I want to speak into the hearts of the fathers out there, and you know who you are, uh, and maybe even to those who have fathers. Um, The Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Ephesians, said these words about fathers and children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." Now, this can be a very difficult task for fathers. And it's important for us to realize the important role we have in our children and bringing them up in the Lord. And because we're human, oftentimes uh, we fall short of this. And there may be some of you out there who have lived through some sort of trauma with your father or have seen this. And so you know firsthand what it's like to, um, to experience this anger um, as a child, perhaps. But we often, in our own strength, that certainly is what the world tells us to do. But Paul gives us a different approach, and that is to be filled with the Spirit. He says earlier in Ephesians, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the answer is to be filled with the Spirit and to realize that the gospel is one of redemption and reconnecting us uh, with those we love. So with that, uh, let's pray. Father God, I lift up the dads uh, here at New City that you would fill them with your Spirit that they will realize that they are only human and that in raising their children in the Lord, that this is something they cannot do in their flesh. So we ask for your spirit to descend upon them, that they will commit to loving you, being obedient uh, to your commandments, and that you would dwell in them, and that you would, with all tenderness, 
um, lead their family and raise their children in the way you would have them. Father, thank you so much for these fathers. Thank you for the children. I pray today that you would bring them together with love and joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. I've exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you. You did a great job with this Hebrew, and there's actually a Persian name in there too, so Susa, not even Hebrew, so that was a real curveball. Um, it is a joy to be with you, and it's, it really is an honor to be here on Father's Day and get to celebrate Father's Day with you all. Um, one of the benefits of my job is that I get to know pastors in the area and work with them at the seminary, and it's been a, a great honor and pleasure to get to work with Will over the years of Reformed Theological Seminary. So I, I, I thank you for sending him uh, so that we could uh, get to know him and, and have this kind of partnership. And I thank you as a church, New City, uh, uh, for um, supporting us and coming alongside the seminary. We don't operate and work and do the things we're called to do if churches aren't in the work with us. Really, it's something we can't do on our own. And so we require the work of the kingdom uh, in our region, uh, both narrowly speaking, like Northern Virginia, and broadly speaking, across the United States and around the world. And so we thank you for that partnership. And I also thank you particularly for um, something that you all probably aren't aware of, but as you uh, invite pastors to come preach, guest uh, preachers to come to your church, you usually have two different kinds of options. You can either tell them what text to preach on, or you can say, just pick a text, okay? Um, I always like it, and I thank you that you all give me a text, okay? Now I know you're like, well, we didn't give you a text, we'll give you a text. But let me just thank you on behalf of, uh, of, of, of myself in the seminary for giving me a text. Because when you get, you're given a text, it means you're coming in as part of a series. You're, par, you're coming in as part of the sermonic dialogue that the church is going through during a particular season or time. And that is the best way that sermons are done, okay? You can come in and you give kind of a one-off. I could come in and kind of give like whatever text I was thinking about this week or something like that. A text. Something about after week or working through a theme week after week and developing it as a body who is hearing God's word together. Okay? 
There's something important about that, and it's an honor to be able to come up and be a part of that kind of thing. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these first three verses in Nehemiah, and um, they're kind of, I mean, they're, they're sort of interesting. It's mostly just historical setting for what is going to happen over the course of the rest of the book. Um, so we're going to look at what it says in these three verses, but really the main focus of my sermon and the charge that I've been given is to kind of give you some context for the story of Nehemiah and Ezra for that matter, even though Ezra, many people think of it as a different book with a different person in it. You're actually going to notice that Ezra makes some cameo appearances here in the book of Nehemiah too, and they really are working together. They're kind of a ministry pair. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of background to Nehemiah and what's happening. Um, This is a part of Israelite history that I can say I probably learned the least about as I was growing up in the church. As a matter of fact, I don't think I really understood this very deeply until I studied it in seminary. And yet it's Israelite history. So as we talk about this, I'm not going to so much focus on Nehemiah the man, though we will look at that for a bit. I want to introduce him as a character because he's an important character in the scripture. But what I really want to do is give some context so that you can feel the tension that he's feeling. We've just read that he hears about the law having been crumbled down around the city of Jerusalem. And actually in the very next verse, it's going to say, and I weeped and grieved as a result and committed myself to prayer for days on end. Okay. You might ask yourself, why is he so upset about a wall? Like, why, why that? And so what we're going to do is just try to set a little bit of the context for what's going on here. Okay. So let's open up in prayer, and then let's kind of dive into that big story of Israelites' history. Okay. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your living word, uh, best and most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, and that he gives expression in his life, in his work, and in his words, his death, his resurrection, his ascension on high, and his reign now in heaven, he gives the best expression of your character, and the best expression of your revelation that we have here in the Word of God. So I pray, Lord, that you give us minds that can understand and conceive of your glory, that you would give us hearts that desire it like Nehemiah desires it, that you'd give us a mouth that proclaims your praise. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so bear with me for a minute. Let's, I, w- I want to blow out this picture all the way out to Uh, The big picture, we might say. And and by the big picture, I mean the biggest picture. (laughs) What is the Bible about? Okay, What is life about? And according to the scriptures, according to the Bible, life is this grand play. And I do mean a play. I mean a play like what would happen on a stage like this behind me. So even imagine the events and the texts and the monologues that happen in scripture as being a play that's being worked out on the stage behind me and that you have acts one after another moving towards this period of completion. And if you were to pull up a synopsis of the play, it would say something like this. This play, that is the Bible, 
is about God's work of bringing his glory to bear in the world that he has made. It's about God bringing his glory to bear in the world that he has made. You start off back at Genesis 1, uh, God is actually creating the earth. And what is he doing? He's, he's making it orderly and he's filling it with things. And then that whole story of Genesis 1 culminates reflectors that reflect back to his, which he calls his image right? Reflectors that reflect back to him his glory and then telling them, go fill this whole world with my glory and reign over it like I would. I mean, that's the story of the play of the Bible. Now, of course, we fall into all kinds of problems when the fall happens and, and humanity is now put under a curse and the work that they do is, is, is frustrated and it's difficult. And even, even the earth, with, which God created and called good, is now under a burden of this curse because of humanity's rebellion. It's actually interesting, by the way, that God never says, and then earth was not good or something like that. Notice actually the earth is still depicted in scripture even today as being under this burden but straining under the burden. Creation around us, to use the words of the apostle Paul, is yearning like a, like a mother is about, who's about to give birth is yearning for that birth so she can get out of the pain, right? Earth is yearning in that work. He actually even kind of puts a salve on creation in the story of Noah because he stabilizes the creation. He, he makes it so that it's not topsy-turvy, but that you have seasons and you have day and night. You have this orderly creation, this theater, really. It's a theater, okay, kind of like a play. It's a theater in which the work of redemption can take place. And then with Abraham, you have God choosing a people and saying, these are the ones I'm going to bless the whole earth through these, this man and his descendants. And then in Noah, I mean, excuse me, in Moses, you then have God say, and this is how you ought to live. This is kind of the profile of those who are in my kingdom, those who are glorifying me, in which I'm serving alongside them and working with them in the work of bringing my glory to bear all over the face of the earth. Now, it's here where I want to start getting into some detail. Because as Moses is giving that promise about how to live your life, how to see the glory of God together, right? And I use that quote, that's Handel's Messiah, but he's quoting Isaiah the prophet, that when God's glory comes, all flesh will see it together, right? You know how that goes when I was a child, I thought it said all fish will see it together. And I was like, why are the fish a part of this story? Okay, but it's all flesh, right? All of humanity is gonna see it together the glory of God. Okay, as Moses is laying out this plan, he, he lays out kind of a, a little Easter egg. He kind of tells us how things are going to happen. I mean, Easter egg in the sense of like a movie having a secret kind of planted in it about the ending before the end comes, okay? And he has this little Easter egg in the book of Deuteronomy where he says, you will serve me in this land... You're going you're gonna to bless, you're going to honor me, and you're going you're gonna to act in a way that's obedient and faithful, and I will bless you. But you're also going to struggle with sin and disobedience. 
I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. You're going to be wrestling with obeying me and with serving me alone. You're going to be tempted to put Baal idols next to my, uh, in my temple next to the ark. You're going to be tempted to put Asherah poles, which are really these totems, you know, celebrating a fertility goddess and putting them right next to the altar. You're going to be tempted to say, we trust in you, Lord, but just to hedge our bets, we're also going to trust in these vegetation deities and these thunderstorm deities because after all, we live in a dry area, right? So we need rain. And he says, there's going to be a slow developing disobedience. I'm going to, and when that disobedience reaches its full, I'm going to disperse you amongst all of the world. I'm going to send you out of the land in, in a punishment, in an exile. It's interesting, Moses actually says this. Go back and read uh, Deuteronomy 28 to 30 of what's going to happen next. It's so prophetically accurate that there are critical scholars, people who don't believe the Bible is the word of God, who says, surely this was written after the fact. Surely this must have been written much, much later because it's so right on with what happens in history. But then Moses says this, and this is the interesting part. This is the key. It's not that now it all ends in the people being dispersed and ejected from the land. But in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says this. He goes, and when you're in those other countries, when you're suffering, when you are like that prayer of lament that we just read, you're on the, the streams of Babylon. And what are you doing by the streams or the canals of Babylon? Well, those are the fields. You're working in the fields, O Israel. And everyone there knows that Israel has these beautiful songs that we have encoded in the book of Psalms that they call the songs of Zion. And they say, sing us, our slave masters are telling us, sing the songs that we love so much. And so we're singing through our tears about Zion while working in the fields of Babylon. And Moses says, when you're there, Deuteronomy 30, you will remember me and you will return to me. And I will bring you back to this land. And then he says this, and you will enjoy greater blessings than your forefathers did. Moses says, after the exile, after that cleansing event of the exile, you're going to come back and enjoy is the hope that is set out for the people of God in the Old Testament. When will we enjoy the greater blessings than our forefathers enjoyed? Now, the centuries pass. Israel does exactly what Moses said it would do. Sometimes it's righteous. Sometimes you have kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. But then you also have kings like Manasseh and Ahab. And the sin develops and sort of accretes. And even when there's moments of repentance, it's actually kind of a shallow repentance. And as soon as the righteous king dies, like Josiah, all of his sons take over and they're just as unrighteous as the previous kings. And find, but everyone, every faithful Israelite, every part of the remnant that is sent out into those nations, people like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're all hoping and they're all remembering, they have echoing in their ears that thing that Moses said, which is that you will remember me and I will bring you back and you will have a better blessing. You'll have a better existence 
than your forefathers like Moses and Joshua and all of those folks. You'll have a better existence. The prophets even say things like, there's going to be a new creation so that the desert, which used to be dry and dead, is now going to sprout with gardens. There's going to be a new temple, says Ezekiel, and it's going to be such a grand cosmic temple. This is Ezekiel 40 through 48, if you want to proof text with me later. Okay, Um, but I'm paraphrasing here because it's a long vision he has, but he says there's going to be this grand temple in the restoration, and there will be a spring of fresh water that bubbles out from below it and feeds the earth, turning all of the death in the earth into life. And there's going to be a new king in the line of David, who unlike all those corrupt shepherds of the past, will be a righteous, good shepherd. So then this kind of remarkable thing happens. The people are dispersed amongst in the land. They're working by the streams of Babylon, but then the Babylonians are conquered. And a king comes, his name is Cyrus, and he has a different way of running the empire. Instead of spreading people out and making them work in his fields as migrants, he gives them just enough money and just enough freedom to feel like they have self-rule, and he sends them back to their lands. This happens in 536 BC, about 90 years before this story that we're reading about Nehemiah. So that happened a long time ago, and you had these people come back like Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah and that the prophets and Moses had talked about. So they built a temple, but it, it wasn't really like Ezekiel's temple. It didn't have a stream that filled the earth with fresh water. It was actually kind of a pitiful building compared to even the building they remember from before. That happens in the book of Ezra. They tried to have self-rule, but they couldn't do anything to the city. They couldn't even build up the wall unless they asked for permission from their Persian overlords. And the people fell back into the same kind of syncretism, the same kind of mixing of religion that they did before the exile. As a matter of fact, if we were to look at the Bible as a play, we've had now a series of acts, right? We could say the act of creation, right? And then act two, Adam and Eve. And then we could say act three, maybe, you know, Noah. Act four, Abraham. Act five, Moses. Act six, David. Okay, we kind of progress like that. As we come to the story of Nehemiah, this is the last act of the first part of the play. As the curtain opens on Nehemiah, and he's sitting there in his uh, Susan uh, capital, okay, in the capital of the, of the Persian Empire, and he's serving before Artaxerxes, this Persian king. He'll even say later in this chapter, he's going to say that he was a cupbearer of the king, which means that he was in a very close relationship. He was maybe the closest confidant of the king of the entire Persian Empire. Notice, by the way, Nehemiah there in the dispersion. He stayed in the faraway nations like Esther and like Daniel and like other faithful Israelites. And he's serving there before the king and he hears this report. And the report is that we're back, we're in the land, we're trying to, trying to bring about the restoration that the prophets told us about. And yet it's not happening the way that we thought. This is in many ways a story of a hope 
deferred. This is the story of a hope that's just fallen short. But as Nehemiah enters into the scene, it becomes a story about what is and what could be. When Nehemiah hears the report that the temple has been rebuilt, but it's in shambles and the wall is crumbling around the city and the people, as he's going to find, the people are still involved in their syncretism and in their mixed worship and saying, yes, I trust in God, but you know, my stock portfolio is real, where my real comfort is. Yes, I trust in God, but if I can just get married, it's going to be okay. Yes, I trust in God, but I'm going to keep my Asherah pole here in front of me just in case that fertility stuff really does work. As he hears it, it grieves him and it causes him to weep. So that's kind of the moment in time. We're going into the last act of the story of redemption. We're going into the last act of the story of the Old Testament before the answer key, <laughs> before we get the second part, before we get the denouement, the resolution to the problem. The character of Nehemiah is a very interesting person. He's a, just to do a, a brief profile on him. And I think usually when people study Nehemiah, they study these as kind of like profiles in leadership. There's nothing wrong with that. He is, I think, one of the sort of unquestionable great leaders of the Old Testament. But he's presented here as someone who has succeeded kind of outside of the land. You know, he's, I kind of think about it, if, if me, you know, if I as a, as a minister of God's word, I'm kind of in the land, right? I'm kind of slaving away in the land, okay, the promised land, working for the, the, the thing that God has called us to, this kind of redemptive program. Um, Nehemiah, in many ways, is kind of like a businessman who's being a faithful follower of God, but out there in Babylon. He's out in Susa. And his work, according to the authors of the scripture, is just as important as the work that's going on back in the land. He's doing a very important work, like Esther would do, in protecting the Israelites who are out there in the diaspora. Or like Daniel would do by providing visions about what will happen next, what we should expect from the Lord. Nehemiah, too, is serving the Lord, but in a secular context. Rule of thumb, if you are reading Hebrew names in, front, in public, I always tell our students, and Will did a good job at it, always read the name the way that everyone understands the name, unless it's not a very clear understanding, right? So uh, as a Hebrew student, it's always painful to hear a new seminary student stand up and say, today we're going to teach about Eliyah. And you go, Eliyah, who's that? Oh, Elijah. Okay, okay, now I know what you're talking about. All right. Same thing, don't say Nehemiah. Okay, if you get up here and say, I'm going to preach today to you about Nehemiah, you're going to say, we don't know what you're talking about. Say Nehemiah. That's what everyone knows. But generally speaking, you do need to remember, anytime you see Yah at the end of a name, that's the divine name. Okay, that's the Lord. Okay, Isaiah, the Lord saves. Okay, Eliyah, Yah, or the Lord is my God, Eli. Okay. Kind of like Dani El, El, God is my judge, Dani. Okay, Nehemiah is the Lord uh, gives rest, he gives comfort. Okay, 
His storyline picks up in what's called the 20th year, and this actually is a bit of a conundrum. It's probably, it's possibly the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. It doesn't say that explicitly, and sometimes you have these sort of shortened historical dot, dot, dot in the Bible. Ezekiel has one too. The book of Ezekiel starts with in the 30th year, and that's kind of like dot, dot, dot. And you say, well, 30th year of what? Okay, and some people think, well, maybe it's his birthday that's when a priest would actually be ordained, and this is when he receives his calling, and he is a priest, Ezekiel. But in this case, with Nehemiah, it's not necessarily clear what it's talking about, okay? It could be the reign of Artaxerxes the king, which would have taken place around 450 BC, 445 roughly BC. So this is almost 100 years after those exiles returned under the Cyrus edict, returning them back to their land. There was so much anticipation about those returnees. As a matter of fact, in the, in the, uh, the prophecies of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, 23, he's talking about the king Zerubbabel who's coming back. This is, this is 90 years before Nehemiah. And in that prophecy, he says, Zerubbabel is the signet ring of the Lord. Think about that image. Think about a signet ring as the ring that the king would use and he pushes it into the wax to seal and say, this is my work being done, right? This is my letter. This is my dictate. And, and Haggai is saying, Zerubbabel, the son of David, he's returning in 536 BC. He's like Adonai pushing his signet ring into the wax of the earth and saying, here comes my kingdom. And yet 90 years have passed, and the temple isn't much to talk about, and the walls are still crumbling, and the community hasn't been restored. Nehemiah hears this, and he responds instantly with grief and weeping. He is depicted as a gifted administrator. He's a leader. He's a man of prayer. Notice that the book begins, we're about to move into it in a second, in the next verse, but the book begins with him praying. But a lot of people don't notice that the book also ends with him praying. In his opening prayer, he says, Lord, show us the way. You're the good God. You're the one who made Zerubbabel your signet ring. Show us the way. How do we bring those promises to bear on the earth in the way you told, them, uh, told us that they would come? It's interesting that at the end of his book, we have again Nehemiah praying. But after all of the work that he's done, he still sees that the promises aren't coming to bear yet in the land. He says this. This is actually his last words of his prayer. These are the last actually historical words that we have in the Old Testament, okay? I mean, we're not sure exactly when Esther is taking place, but the last words we have about an Israelite in Israel reflecting on his work in Israel happens at the end of the book of Nehemiah. He's praying and it says this. As a matter of fact, if we're doing the play, imagine this screen being dark. The whole audience is dark and there's one spotlight and it's coming down right in the middle. And there you have Nehemiah on his knees praying to the Lord and he says this. I cleanse them from everything pagan. I establish the duties at the appointed times and the first fruits would go dark and the curtain would close. 
And depending on which gospel you're reading, the curtain would open on John the Baptist marching out and doing a baptism of repentance or, or the, you know, the birth narrative of Jesus. But as the Old Testament closes, it closes on Nehemiah's prayer. That even though hope has been deferred, even though he has such a clear picture of what is and what can be, it hasn't been fulfilled yet in his lifetime. And he prays, Lord, don't forget about us. Actually kind of sounds very similar to John's ending words, right, in Revelation. Oh, come quickly, O Lord, right? Maranatha, come quickly, O Lord. The recognition is that the Lord hasn't come yet in full, and Nehemiah is painfully aware of it. So what do we get out of this? What do we get out of this opening chapter, this, this, this character and the context in which the book of Nehemiah takes place? Well, we see a few things, first of all. We see something, I think, that's actually very similar to our time. We've seen the blessings of the Lord begin. We've, we've seen that the Lord is with us, that he, he, is, he does restore Israel. He restores them back in the returnees in 536 B.C. And yet we realize that his blessings have not come in full. Like Nehemiah, we can see how God is still with his people. And yet we're wondering, how long, O oh Lord? We're praying still prayers of laments. Don't you look forward to a time in worship when we're not praying prayers of lament? Don't you look forward for a time when we're not saying, Lord, forgive us, not only for the abuses done against us, but for the abuses that we've done ourselves, have mercy on us? Nehemiah is praying something that we want to pray as well. Oh, Lord, for good. Let me just point out about, about Nehemiah, and I am stretching a little bit into next week's verse, so forgive me. But this whole point of him hearing the report is that he hears the report about Jerusalem, and he prays for it. His heart causes him to grieve for it. There's another prophet who we will see who will grieve for Jerusalem, who will stand over it on its borders and he'll look down on it and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks? See, Jesus Christ, like Nehemiah, comes down and he sees the city he sees a report of it, and he grieves for it. You see, Nehemiah, like Jesus, has a heart that is conformed to the desires of God. And this is one thing I think we need to be reminded of as we look at a person like Nehemiah, who's in many ways has everything going for him. He's quite successful. He can stay there in Susa and live a nice, comfortable life. And yet his heart has been adopted by the living God. His heart has been conformed to the desires of God. And as he sees the city and he sees what is and what could be, his heart is drawn by it. We talk a lot in the Christian church about orthodoxy, about having right thoughts, right ideas, right doctrines. We talk a little bit more about orthopraxy or orthopraxis, the idea of doing the right things, morality and ethics. I think we sometimes speak a little too lightly 
or infrequently about orthopathology, <laughs> orthopathos. In other words, what are the right feelings? Do we desire the things that God desires? We live in that kind of a post-enlightenment age where people taught that emotions were unreliable and therefore untrustworthy. You should just try to get rid of them. But actually, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that your feelings, your desires, Actually, the everyday practices, the things that you do. What do you meditate on before you go to bed? What's the thing that kind of gives you peace? And then it asks you, is it the Lord? Or is it an Asherah pole? <laughs> is it a Baal statue? Quite understandable pagan beliefs, by the way, if, you're a, if you are someone who's really concerned with fertility in your crops and rain on your crops. You can understand why someone might be concerned with that. See, the scripture calls us to have our desires conformed to God. Now, scripture doesn't just tell us to do it. It's not just a command. It's not just a law that's kind of forced on you from the outside. But we actually see the way in which this works. And I, I think one of the best ways to describe it is the fact that we are given a spirit to desire the things of our Father God. Paul in Romans calls this a spirit of sonship. It's appropriate to talk about on Father's Day as we remember our very imperfect, perhaps, perhaps loving, perhaps faithful, but imperfect and always flawed fathers. But we should remember them as those who are looking ahead to our perfect, loving, faithful, gentle father. We've been given a spirit of sonship, says Paul, so that we too can cry out like a little child, Abba, Father. We're not orphans in this life. And I think even Christians can have kind of an orphaned mindset. You can live as if you don't have a father who loves you and celebrates you every day of your life. You can live as if you have to get people's attention. You've got to earn what they, well, you know, you've got to earn that kind of favor. You've got to earn that kind of affection. And little do you know, O oh Christian beloved, you are a son. And I don't say son because it's better to be a, a masculine offspring than a feminine offspring or something like that. Being a son isn't good because of masculinity. Being a son is good because of Jesus. You are in the son, and when he receives you, your father, he receives you like he receives Jesus. And therefore, your heart can be conformed to his. You don't have to act. You don't have to put on a good face or put on a good show. You go to him and you say, Lord, conform me, O Father, to your desires. Conform my heart to your heart. Let me grieve for what could be in the way that you grieve for what could be. So notice Nehemiah is a man whose heart has been conformed to the Lord, even kind of against all odds, against his context, against his own vocation. His heart is conformed to the Lord. But secondly, he's a man of prayer. He's a, he's a Christian of prayer, a believer in prayer. And he starts his work and he ends his work with prayer. As a matter of fact, the memoirs of Nehemiah, which if you really dig into this book and read some commentaries on it, you'll notice that this, this book is actually made up of both narrative and then these little excerpts from Nehemiah's diary. It really is. And his diary is filled with prayers. 
He's praying to the Lord. Like Jesus himself, he is a leader of prayer. He is a man of prayer. Prayer draws us into communion with our Father God. Notice how Jesus himself tells us to pray. We're not supposed to go to the Lord and say, Dear Father of Jesus, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What do we say? Our Father. We see and help our hearts be conformed to God's character when we go to him in prayer. It's actually a beautiful thing that our Lord does not just speak to us. He doesn't just give us decrees and kind of leave it at that. But he actually gives us his word and then he invites us to respond in prayer, both in praise and thanksgiving and supplication and being honest about the things that you need and the things that you want. Remember, working in a church and a young woman came into my office kind of being sort of living out her faith. She said, I believe all this stuff. But I have such a hard time living it out. And so we were talking about kind of connecting faith to activity. And at one point she said, you know, I don't even know that I want to live it out. That's the problem. Even as I'm saying this to you, I feel kind of casual about it. And I asked her, I said, have you ever prayed for God to give you the desire to want to live these things out? I think so often we pray and we say, Lord, help us to be better. Help us not to do this thing. Help us to get away from that besetting sin. Do you go to the Lord in prayer and say, Father, help me to want it. Help me to be conformed to you. Help me to believe more. To pray like that father prays to Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I'll tell you, the older I get, the longer I serve in Christian ministry, the more I'm a Christian dad and a Christian husband and a part of the world, the more I find that that's my prayer. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Help me to desire the things you desire. Help me to want what you want. We can do that by praying to our God, to bringing, bringing sincere, authentic prayers to Him. Reading the Word and praying back the Word to Him. You ever done that? If, you're dry, if your prayer life is getting dry and you find yourself falling into kind of typical prayer language, have you, have you read the Bible? Like, even read Nehemiah, like the verses that we just read and say, Lord... I see that you called Nehemiah out of 450 BC to serve you. Please also call me in my time in the 21st century to serve you. I mean, as mundane as that, I see how Nehemiah's heart was rendered uh, broken by hearing about Jerusalem. Let me also be broken for the, for the, for the, the shortcomings and the failures and what could be in the church. Help me to long for training up leaders and being a part of the spiritual formation of the church. That's one great way, I think, to actually ignite your prayer life and make it a dialogue with God, your Father. If you also struggle, actually, not very often in the Bible, the Lord gives us a script. If you're wrestling with it, let me show you exactly how to do it. And just start praying Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. You might actually be surprised about some of the things that the psalmist prays for. He'll sometimes even say things that, that often many of us evangelicals would never say. He'd say things like, 
I am blameless, Lord. This is unjust that I'm experiencing this. Something we don't often pray, right? You actually might be surprised at the richness and the wealth of the prayers of the Psalms. Pray the Bible. Pray the Scripture back to God. Because prayer is a means of grace. It's a means by which your salvation is communicated to you. You're not saved by your prayer, but you do get to enjoy the grace that Christ has won for you in your prayer and in your engagement with the Word. You see, we have much in common with Nehemiah. He's a part of this story, and the curtain's about to close, and and he's going to have this big unanswered question of the Old Testament. How is God going to bring his glory to bear on the earth? And if you think about it, the New Testament writers are basically going to spend most of their time saying, look at how Jesus does it. Look how Jesus is the temple, John 2. And John says, and we had no idea what he was talking about when he said it, but Jesus said, I am the temple. He's the great temple, Ezekiel talked about, out of whom will come streams of living water, right? That will feed the earth, and if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Jesus is the one who's going to bring new creation by rising from the dead, therefore being a down payment or an assurance that we too will be a part of the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is going to be the uncorrupted son of David who will reign over his people. You realize that as a Christian, you serve under this Jewish son of David? But guess what? He's perfect and he's righteous. And you'll die for his kingdom. You see, the New Testament is saying all of those unanswered questions of the Old Testament that basically come down to this. How will God fill the earth with his glory they find their yes and their amen in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why as Christians we can say that Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. But he is the answer to the question that the Old Testament is asking. And so I pray that over the next few weeks as you're delving into this unknown part of the Bible, this story of Nehemiah, the last act doing, because Like Nehemiah, we should be on our knees saying, Lord, how is this going to end? Remember us for good. Let's pray in that regard. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift this time up to you as we consider Nehemiah the person. Dear Lord, we give you thanks that you use people, even like him, even flawed, even imperfect people to teach us about how you are and the kind of Savior that we would need. I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these things, we would see Jesus as not merely the way in which our sins are forgiven. That is a beautiful thing. But as the way and the manner through which the glory of God can be seen on this earth and enjoyed forever. Please bless us now as we proclaim his death and we look forward to his his return. We look forward to his coming again, to the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray that this would be a spiritual food for us and nourish us in it, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.